All right, as Dan mentioned, it is our custom at Crossway that on Reformation Sunday, the day when we remember, this would be the, the day where, uh, actually we're on Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday lands on Reformation Day this year, uh, October 31st, the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, um, which sparked the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of a true biblical teaching of uh, the message of salvation, the gospel of, of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Every year for Reformation Sunday, we do something of a historical message to connect ourselves back to history. And that's partly because it is a good thing to be aware of the history, to be aware of our family tree, uh, church-wise speaking. Okay? Of course, we believe what the Bible says, and that is our ultimate basis, but um, we do not simply sort of come out of a vacuum believing what we do, but we've been shaped by thinkers and churches and um, generations of believers who have come before us. And so we want to honor that, and we want to uh, instill some of that historical reflection in our own church. And so this morning, we will be listening to a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, as you see there, uh, he lived from 1703 to 1758. He's probably the best-known Puritan. Um, many would argue that he is also the greatest American theologian to date, uh, theolo pastor theologian. He was a brilliant mind. If you read some of his works, he is absolutely, insanely smart. Um, he entered Yale at the age of 13. He was deeply into philosophy and the sciences. Even as a kid, he wrote a book on like the science of, of spiders that was published. Eventually, he became a Congregationalist pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, and was an adherent to and a proponent of a New England form of Reformed theology. He was one of the major leaders in the First Great Awakening. That said, he was also a man of imperfections. As many have know, probably know, he was someone who owned slaves, although his particular views on that are a little bit obscured. Um, but nonetheless, he was an imperfect man. He was fired from his church in Northampton um, due to his views on the Lord's Supper and barring certain people from the Lord's Supper. Um, and eventually after that, he ministered among the Mohican tribe in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Eventually, he, became, he was appointed the president of Princeton at that, what eventually became Princeton, um, but died very quickly afterwards due to smallpox. If you'd like to know more about Edwards' life, George Marsden... George Marsden has like the classic biography of Edwards. He has a very long version. He also has a really short version. Um, both of them are very good um, if you'd like to read those. So this morning we'll be looking at his most well-known sermon, um, one that sometimes gets read in high school uh, English classes, um, oftentimes misunderstood in contexts like that. But this, this sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I will be reading what is both a modernized version, so not the original version, but one is that where the language has kind of been brought up to modern parlance, and also adapted. So I've adapted it in order to abridge it, in order to make it shorter. So I've actually cut it in half about. Um, it's a pretty long sermon. So you can read the whole thing, though, online. If you'd like to get the uh, full version, you can find the modernized version on Kindle for like three bucks, or I'm sure the original version is free as a PDF. Um, so this sermon was actually, it actually served as part of the catalyst for the Great Awakening. It had quite an effect on its original hearers. 
Um, that said, we shouldn't define Edwards by this sermon alone, thinking that this is sort of a good example of the sort of preaching he did always. This is actually a unique sermon. Most of his work is done on themes of beauty and affections and the sovereignty of God and joy and even the highest virtue of love. Those are the things that he's probably best known for. But nonetheless, he did preach this, and this fits into his theology. Some things to be aware of is that in this sermon, Edwards speaks with unbridled awareness of the holiness of God and his wrath towards sin. He speaks in rather stark terms that may be shocking to us and even abrasive to us in our culture about God's wrath towards sin. And the fact that we are apt to find it offensive probably means that we actually need to hear it all the more. Um, He even admits that as stark as he speaks about God's wrath, he's only really hitting the, the tip of the iceberg. That human language cannot even plumb the depths of uh, God's ineffable, um, holy hatred of sin. And the other comment I would like to make is that I think the sermon is oftentimes misunderstood. As much as it speaks of God's anger and his wrath towards sin, and as sinners in the hands of that angry God, that image of God holding us in his hands, Edwards actually means as something good for the sinner. In other words, um, God has every right to consign the unregenerate, unsafe person to hell in this moment. The fact that the believer is in the hands of that angry God, that God who has all the right to be angry with them in their sin and has every right to be wrathful towards them, every right to damn them, the fact that he holds them is a sign of his forbearance. He has not let them go to hell, even though they deserve it this very moment. His holding them is an expression of his mercy towards them even yet, offering them still a chance to repent. So with that said, At this point, I will be sort of taking on the role of Edwards, everything I say from this point on. Again, it's not his exact original words, but it's reflective in a modernized, abridged form of that. So I'll be preaching Edwards' sermon from this point on. Deuteronomy 32-35. The time is at hand when their foot shall slip. In this verse, God's vengeance is threatened against the wicked and unbelieving Israelites. Even though God had performed many wonderful works for them, the Israelites remained in a state of stupor. They were given all the tools of spiritual cultivation, and yet the fruit of their lives was bitter and poisonous. The expression I have chosen for my text, the time is at hand when their foot shall slip, it seems to imply the following truths about their punishment. Number one, that the Israelites were exposed to a constant threat of sudden destruction. This picture of a sliding foot illustrates a constant threat of ruin. If a person stands or walks on a slippery surface, then a fall is always a pressing possibility. The picture of a slipping foot also teaches us of the suddenness of their fall. The person walking on a slippery surface is liable to fall at any moment. When he does finally fall, it happens suddenly and without a warning. Psalm 73, 18 through 19 expresses the same message. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Number two, the Israelites will only fall at God's appointed time. 
The only reason they had not yet fallen was because God's appointed time had not yet come. The text says their foot will slide in due time or when the appointed time comes, and then they will be left to fall. Then they will be pulled down by their own weight, God no longer holding them up on these slippery surfaces. Instead, he will let them go and immediately they will fall into their destruction. The point I now want to draw from this text is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked people at any given moment out of hell except the mere pleasure of God. When I say the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure and will. In other words, God is not being forced to hold wicked people out of hell by any obligation. He is not hindered by any kind of difficulty from dropping them into hell whenever he decides to do so. It is his mere pleasure alone that leads him to preserve the lives of wicked people at any given moment. He decides to hold them up from the flames just because that is what he wants to do and for no other reason. The truth of this observation will be seen in the following considerations. Number one, God lacks no power to cast into hell. At any given moment, God has full power to cast wicked people into hell. Even the strongest people have no power to resist him. Neither can anyone rescue others from his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked people into hell, but he can most easily do it. There are times on earth when a ruling prince attempts to subdue a rebel and finds it to be extremely difficult. Perhaps the rebel has found a way to protect himself with a fortress, or perhaps he has made himself strong by developing a large following. But it is never this way for those who rebel against God. No fortress can be built that would provide defense from his power. Though God's enemies join hands in vast multitudes combining their power together, they are easily broken into pieces. They are like large heaps of light chaff in the path of a tornado, or a huge pile of dry stubble lying in the path of a furious fire. It is easy for us to stomp and crush a worm found crawling on the earth. And it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that holds up a hanging object. Similarly, it is easy for God to cast his enemies down into hell whenever it pleases him to do so. Who do we think we are to, to attempt to stand before him. Do we not realize that his rebuke causes the earth to tremble and that giant boulders are thrown around him as he moves? Number two, wicked people deserve hell. God's perfect fairness and justice calls out loud for their infinite punishment because the wicked are condemned by their sins. When they are cast into hell, they are receiving exactly what they deserve. Indeed, God's justice says of the tree that produces grapes like Sodom, Luke 13, 7, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Only the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will hold back the sword of his divine justice. Number three, wicked people are already condemned to hell. Not only do wicked people deserve hell, but they are already under the sentence of it and bound over to hell. 
John 3.18 confirms this where Christ teaches, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Hell is the proper place where every unconverted person belongs. The place designed for every person who is apart from Christ. Hell is the unbeliever's place of origin. As John 8.23 states, you are from, from below. Hell is the place of his final destination assigned to him by justice, God's word, and the sentence of God's unchangeable law. Number four, God's anger is the same now as it is in hell. Additionally, wicked people are right now, at this very moment, the focus of God's anger and wrath. Just because they are not falling into hell this very second doesn't mean that God has no anger against them. He is just as angry with them now as he is with the multitude of miserable creatures currently being tormented in hell. Indeed, God is substantially angrier with a large number of of people who now remain on earth. Yes, without a doubt, God is angrier with some of you in this congregation than he is with people currently in the flames of fire. This is true even if you feel at ease about the situation. God always remembers and resents the wickedness of people. He is not forgetful or ignorant. Their damnation never sleeps. The pit is prepared and the fire is ready. The furnace is now hot and set to receive them, its mouth open beneath them. Number five, the wicked are condemned by the hellish principles reigning within them. In the very souls of wicked men, a foundation is laid for the torments of hell. Hellish principles are reigning powerfully inside the wicked and have full possession of them. These principles are capable, even now, of kindling the flames of hellfire into a blaze. They are the seeds of hellfire. If God were not restraining them with his hand, they would quickly break out into consuming flames. In the scriptures, the souls of wicked people are compared to the troubled sea. Presently, God restrains their wickedness in the same way that he restrains the raging winds of the troubled sea. He says to the sea, thus far shall you come and no further. But if God removed his restraining power, the sea would quickly carry away everything in its path. And so sin ruins the soul and makes it miserable. It is destructive by nature. If God leaves sin without restraint, nothing else would be needed to bring the soul to complete misery. Number six, wicked people have no security at all. People are always on the brink of eternity. Their next step being into another world. No security comes to the wicked just because they don't expect to die soon. We can't even imagine all the unseen possible ways people might leave this world. In the same way, people in their natural state are cautious with their lives. But this does not bring them any moment of sure security. The liability of early and unexpected death is the same for all of us. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says how the wise dies just like the fool. Unconverted people walk over the pit of hell on a rotten floor. And there are innumerable unseen places in this floor that are too weak to bear their weight. 
All the possible ways sinners might leave the world are in God's hands. He has universal and absolute power over them. The mere will of God is always the determining factor as to whether sinners will enter hell at a given moment. Number seven, there are no schemes allowing the wicked to escape hell. When most people in their natural state hear of hell, they flatter themselves that they will escape it. The natural man depends on himself. He considers what he has done, what he is currently doing, or what he intends to do. He mentally plans and in self-flattery convinces himself that he will avoid damnation. Indeed, the wicked hear that many people who have lived have now since dined and gone, and gone to hell. But, but each wicked person still imagines that, that his plan for escaping hell is better than what other people had come up with. And so he does not intend to enter into that place of torment himself. However, when the foolish children of men, men place their confidence in their own schemes, they reveal their own miserable self-delusion. They trust in nothing but a shadow. It's not that those in hell had any less wisdom or that their plan of escape was not laid out well enough. Imagine if we could speak to these people in hell. We might ask each of them about when they were alive. Did you ever expect to be the subjects of the misery of this place? Doubtless we would hear them individually respond, No, I never intended to come here. I had things planned much differently in my mind. Number eight, God never promised to keep any natural man from hell. God is under no obligation to keep such a person from eternal destruction, not even for one moment. The only promise that God has made concerning eternal life is contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ. He has made no other promise to grant eternal life or to deliver people from eternal death or to preserve them from it. But the wicked, they certainly have no interest in the promise of this covenant of grace. This is because they are not children of the covenant and they do not believe in any of its promises. And so here's the situation. People in their natural state are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit, and they're already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked by these wicked people. His anger is just as great towards them as it is towards those who are already in hell, actually suffering the executions of his fierce wrath now. These people have done nothing in the least to appease or abate God's wrath, and God is not bound in the least to hold them up, not even for a moment. He has made no promise at all to do so. Hell is gaping for them. The flames below gather and they flash about them, desiring to take them and swallow them up, while the fire pent up in their hearts is also struggling to break out. Furthermore, they have no interest in any mediator, and there are no means within their reach that they can provide themselves for security. They have no refuge, nothing to take hold of, the only thing preserving them each second is the mere arbitrary will of an angry God. His forbearance towards the wicked is provided without obligation. The reason I am using this awful subject 
of eternal punishment is so that it might awaken unconverted people in this congregation. What you have heard is true for each one of you who is outside of Christ. The lake of burning brimstone, a world of misery, is spread out wide below you. There it is. Just there below you, hell's wide gaping mouth opens. And you have nothing to stand upon, nothing to grab that would hold you up. Only air stands between you and hell. Again, it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up and keeps you from falling. If you are unconverted, most likely you are not even aware of this. You can see that you have not entered into hell presently, but perhaps you are blind to the reality that the, it's only God's hand that is now preserving you from falling in. You are distracted from this fact. Those things that have so far kept you from death are nothing If God decided to withdraw his hand, none of these things would succeed in keeping you from falling. They would be no more helpful to you than thin air is for holding up a person suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you heavy like lead. This heavy weight tends to press you downwards towards hell. And if God were to let you go, your sinking descent would be swift and immediate. These things have no more influence to hold you up from hell than a spider's web would have from stopping a falling rock. If it were not for God's sovereign pleasure, the very ground beneath your feet would not hold you, not even for a moment. God's wrath can be compared to mighty waters that are currently held back by a dam. The waters increase more and more, rising higher and higher until an outlet for them is given. The longer the stream is stopped up, the more rapid and mighty it will flow once it is released. Yes, it is true that your evil works have not been judged yet. God's vengeance has not yet flooded out upon you, but all the while the level of your guilt is constantly increasing. Every day you are treasuring up more of God's wrath. The waters are ever rising higher, pressing to go forward. It is the mere pleasure of God that holds these waters back. If God were simply to remove his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. Then all the furious floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush out with inconceivable fury. These mighty floods would crash upon you with absolute power. The bow of God's wrath is bent with the arrow ready on the string. Justice aims the arrow at your heart, straining the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that prohibits for even one moment that arrow from becoming drunk on your blood. God is angry. He has made no promise to deliver the wicked. If you have been raised, if you have never been raised from your state of deadness and sin and have been made new in Christ, indeed you are in the hands of an angry God. It doesn't matter whether you have reformed your life in various ways, nor does it matter if you have experienced religious emotions. It doesn't matter if you practice some form of religion. It doesn't matter because none of these things have the ability to keep you out of hell's fire. It doesn't matter if you are unconvinced of the truth of what you are hearing. You will be fully convinced of it in due time. The people who are now gone, who, have, who are in a similar circumstance as you are currently, 
they are now fully convinced of the truth. You have dreadfully provoked the God who holds you over the pit of hell. He holds you up much like a person might hold a spider or some repugnant insect over a fire. God abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks at you and he sees that you are worthy of nothing else but to be thrown into the fire. In fact, his eyes are so pure that he can't even stand even to look at you. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than the most hateful venomous snake is in ours. Yet, it is nothing but God's hand that holds you from falling into the fire moment by moment. There is no reason why you did not fall into hell last night except that an angry God was holding you, preserving you from falling. This moment, there was no other reason why you were permitted to wake up from sleep once more in this world. And no other reason can be given why you haven't dropped into hell since you rose from your bed just a little while ago except that God's hand has held you up. Likewise, there is no other reason why you have not entered into hell since you sat down here in the house of God today. As you sit there right now, you are provoking God's pure eyes by the sinful way you attend this solemn worship. Indeed, no other reason at all can be given as to why you do not, at this very second, drop down into hell. O sinner, Think about the frightening danger you are in. God holds you in his hands over a great furnace. You have provoked his wrath, and he is angry against you as he is with many who are already damned in hell. You are hanging by a slender thread. The the flames of divine wrath are flashing around the thin thread, ready to singe it and burn it apart. You act like you aren't interested in a mediator to help you. And so you have nothing to grab that would save you. You have no way in your own power to keep the flames of his wrath off of you. Nothing you have ever done or will ever do would be successful in convincing God to spare you for even one mere moment. In order to help you see the gravity of your terrible situation, there are several truths that you must understand. Number one You must understand whose wrath you are facing. You are facing the wrath of the infinite God. If this was merely the wrath of man, it would not be near as important to heed. Even if it was the wrath of the most powerful ruler, it would still not even compare. Proverbs 20 verse 2 says that the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. But even the greatest earthly rulers at the high point of their majesty and strength are like feeble and despicable worms of dust compared to the king of heaven and earth. Remember the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Number two, you are exposed to the fierceness of God's wrath. Revelation 19.15 He will tread 
the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. These words are exceedingly terrible. If the text had only said the wrath of God, that alone would have an infinitely dreadful implication. But it goes further than that and it says the fury of the wrath of God. Oh, the fury of God, how dreadful that must be. You you can't even think of words that might describe that wrath. But it goes even further than that. The text says the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. It is his omnipotence that is enraged and his omnipotence that takes fierce action. This being the case, oh, what will become of the poor worms who suffer under the almighty rage? The pitiful creature who becomes a subject of God's wrath will be sunk into an inconceivable depth of misery. Consider these words carefully. If you remain in an unregenerate state, then God will execute the fierceness of his anger on you. He will inflict his wrath upon you without any pity. He will have no compassion on you, nor will he hold back his his wrathful executions. He will not lighten his hand of wrath, not even a little. There will be no moderation or mercy towards you, for God will have no concern for your welfare. Ezekiel 8.18 says, Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. When you cry out to God for pity, he will give you no regard or favor at all, but he will tread you beneath his feet. Isaiah 63.3, I trod them in my anger and trample them in my fury. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. He will not only hate you, but his contempt for you will be at the highest level. There will be no place fit for you except under his feet, where you will be flattened like mud in the streets. You will not be able to bear the weight of omnipotence walking on top of you. The wrath of the Almighty God is awful. But in spite of this reality, here In the present moment, God actually stands ready to pity you. Today is a day of mercy. Right now, you can cry out for mercy and receive encouragement that you might obtain it. Once this day of mercy has passed, however, even the most miserable cries from your soul will be in vain. Your most lamentable shrieks will be useless. You will be totally lost and cast away. God will have no other use for you except that you suffer misery. This will be the only goal of your continued existence. You will be a vessel of wrath fit for destruction, good for nothing but to be filled up full of God's wrath. Romans 9:22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction? This is what will happen to you if you remain in an unconverted state. The infinite might, majesty, and horror of the omnipotent God will be magnified through the extremities of your indescribable torments. Thirdly, God's wrath is everlasting. 
Oh, but there is even more that you must understand. Think also about the reality that God's wrath is an everlasting wrath. Its duration is never ending. It would be dreadful enough if you had to suffer under the ferocity and wrath of Almighty God for only one moment. But you must suffer under the wrath for all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisitely horrible misery. When you look forward into the future, you will see a long forever, a boundless duration in front of you. This reality will swallow up your thoughts and it will agonize your soul. Your despair will be absolute as you see no deliverance in sight. There will be no end or alleviation to your suffering. You will know with certainty that you will spend millions and millions of long ages wrestling and conflicting with God's mighty, merciless vengeance. And then, when you have finally finished so many ages of enduring his wrath, you will know that it was only a tiny point compared to what remains. Oh, can any person even express in words how dreadful is the state of a soul in that horrible circumstance? How dreadful is the condition of people who are in danger of infinite misery? Daily and hourly, God's wrath threatens them. But this is the dismal condition of every soul in this congregation who has not been born again. You might be very moral or strict or upright and religious, but those things don't matter, for they can't save your soul. Oh, that you would think deeply about the fact that apart from Christ, you will endure eternal punishment. There are good reasons to think that there are many people in this congregation, even hearing this very sermon, who will actually be the subjects of eternal misery. It might be that they are currently at ease with their souls. Perhaps as they listen to this message, they are not much disturbed by it. Perhaps they are flattering themselves, believing that they are not the ones facing the wrath of God. Perhaps they are promising themselves that somehow they will escape. What if we knew that there was one person, only one in the whole congregation, who would be cast into hell and become a subject of its misery? How awful to even think about it. What if we knew who it was? It would be terrible to even look at this person. The rest of the congregation would lift up a lament and would bitterly cry over him. But alas, instead of one, how many people do you think will remember this sermon while they are in hell? Furthermore, it would not be surprising if some of the people present in this service were in hell in a very short period of time before this year is out, or even before tomorrow morning. For those of you who live a natural, full life, I suppose you will be able to put off entering hell the longest. But even you will be there quickly enough. No doubt, some of the people that you have known already are currently in hell. Their severe eternal punishment has already begun. Keep in mind, They did not deserve hell any more than you do. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God. You still have the opportunity to obtain salvation. What do you think those poor, damned, hopeless souls would give for just one day to have the opportunity you now have? 
Oh, right now you have an extraordinary opportunity. Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. He is standing at the door, raising his voice aloud, calling and crying for poor sinners to come and be saved. How can you rest one moment while in this condition? You who are younger men and women, listen carefully. Will you neglect this precious season? If you do, soon you will be like the people who wasted all the precious days of their youth in sin. After a time living in that condition, they have arrived at a dreadful moment of blindness. A stage of life where their hearts are extremely hardened against the Lord. Oh, be careful not to fall into the same dangerous state of mind and heart. A final plea. Let everyone who is outside of Christ still, outside of the grace of Christ, who is hanging over the pit of hell, listen now as God calls you through his word and providence. Remember this truth. At times like this, when people neglect their souls, their hearts grow hard and their guilt increases. Therefore, let each of you who is outside of Christ wake up right now and flee from the coming wrath. So run to Christ and flee out of Sodom. Genesis 19:17. Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. This concludes Edward's sermon. At this point, I was going to head right into the Lord's Supper. I feel like I need to catch, my, catch myself before I even do that after that tour de force. So maybe with the time we have, let's, I'll just call an audible and let's have a time of silent reflection, both confessing the sin that remains in our lives Um, examining ourselves, as well as thanking God as we dwell on the, the bad news that shows us the goodness of the good news. Let's take time and just self reflection for a moment. I hope you appreciated that sermon as much as I do. It's not every Sunday you get to preach and be preached to at the same time. Um, as I said, I think it's a sermon that can easily be misunderstood. But if you truly understand where he's going, it is, it is gospel truth. It is truth that is in scripture. And it, is, it may be hard truth for us to hear, but it is a good, it's good for our soul. Just like the surgeon has to... Um, in some way, you might say, do damage to cut the, uh, the patient open and to, and to amend things. So a good sermon oftentimes has to cut us in order to help us heal again. And that's what I think Edward's sermon does. Now, 
to be clear as well, Edwards is, as a congregationalist pastor, he was also operating, you should understand, in the context of a congregation where um, many in his congregation were not saved. They, they practiced infant baptism, and in particularly in his church, they had a very, this is why he was fired, they had a very lenient view of, of, of allowing people into the church, such that there were many people in his church who he very well knew were probably not saved. We pray that that is not the case here. Uh, we pray that as a church that practices uh, membership for believers and only believers, that that is genuinely the case of all of us. But sometimes that obviously is not always the case. And so if you're here today, uh, it's a good check. Am I actually trusting in Christ? Is my soul awakened to the misery that would otherwise await me? It's a good spur on to evangelism, too, as we think about sharing the gospel with the lost. That this is the destiny, and this is the right and righteous destiny of all those who are apart from Christ. This is what uh, our sin against the holy God actually demands. And as Edward says, he's only really scratching the surface. But I hope your soul is encouraged this morning. Um, to, if you're already someone who is placing your faith in Christ, to keep placing your faith in Christ. To keep clinging to Christ. That your faith would have been nourished and built up by seeing your need for Christ, abandoning all trust in yourself. You can't do it. You cannot save yourself. That is what the Reformation, um, one of the, that was at the heart of the Reformation, the material cause, scholars say, of the, of the Reformation, the debate over how is one saved. As Paul says, we are saved not by works, for by works no human can be justified before God. It is through works that we are condemned but it's through faith alone, by trusting in the work of Christ alone. It is what he has done alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. He became the curse for us. He bore the curse that we deserve for our sins. The very wrath of God that, that, that Edwards unpacks here, that we deserve. Christ bore that misery on the cross for all those who run to Christ and rest in him and trust in him. And there's great assurance to be found in that, that now, instead of being those who are rightfully, God, God actually abhors us in our wickedness before God, we have actually been transferred and adopted as his children with every right of what it means to be a part of God's family. Amen? It's a beautiful truth. And we get to live in that reality and we get to celebrate that reality every week in the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. It is, a, it is a seal of those promises in the gospel as it depicts the body and the blood of Christ that is his death for us in his body. Um, it is a seal. It's a, I like to say, a pictured promise of the gospel made visible to us. So as we hear the gospel preached with words, we have the gospel preached through us with God-given symbols. And so if you are here today and you are a believer who is walking in step with the gospel, a gospel that saves us by grace but calls us to repentance, of course not of perfection but of, of direction and genuine striving after holiness and Christ-likeness, um, we would invite you to come forward and participate with us this morning. Um, if you are here today and you are not a believer, if you are not someone who is trusting in Christ, we are very glad to have you with us this morning. Obviously, we would just ask that you would abstain from partaking of the elements. Scripture does teach that we ought to judge ourselves as we partake of the, of the Lord's Supper. We should discern the body. We should discern what's really going on here, the significance, the sacredness of this institution God has given us and take it seriously, which means we should only take it if it's appropriate, if we are actually someone who is in step with the gospel, believing in Christ and living in line with that confession. Um, and so if you're not a believer today, 
I hope you take to heart the message that you heard this morning. And I would invite you, if you are someone who's questioning um, what it looks like to actually be saved from that, that wrath, from that judgment of God, um, we're going to have someone out at the prayer uh, banner out in the, in the lobby. You can find prayer with them. You can talk to me. You can talk to Dan or one of the members here as well. We'd, we would love to help you think more about that and know how you can find salvation in Christ. So with that said, let's go ahead and stand. We will come forward. You can sing as you come forward. When you get back to your seats, you can be seated. As Edward said, the only hope that is offered to us is the mediator of the covenant of God's grace, Jesus Christ. And for those who trust in Jesus, all the benefits of that covenant are ours. Not because of anything we've done. We see what it looks like for humanity under the law, under the obligations of God's covenant. When Israel was under the Mosaic covenant, they couldn't obey the law. They couldn't on their own rightfully obtain its blessings. But Christ has come of a mediator of a better covenant, the author of Hebrews says. And so through Jesus' obedience to the law, and through his satisfying it demands, not only in his active obedience, but in his passive suffering on account of our sin, all the blessings of that covenant are now ours. And we live in the hope of that. Jesus tells us that the Lord's Supper is an emblem of that promise to us of the new covenant. The very Holy Spirit who indwells us, who causes us to live out the demands of the law, as well as the sacrifice of Christ who satisfied the demands of the law for us. And so Jesus says on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and after, cupper, after supper, sorry, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.